He's in the business of bringing light into the dark spaces, of bringing hope to the hopeless, bringing uh, salvation to a world that desperately, desperately needs it. And really, the whole point of this little mini-series is the fact that God actually chooses to do that through us. That although we're really broken, stuffed up individuals, although we bring nothing at all to the table, God takes us and he uses us as his primary instrument in how he chooses to break new grounds. That God doesn't need us, but like a good, good father, he actually delights to work through us. And so what I wanna do tonight is I wanna land this whole series called New Ground by, by asking a really simple question. And you're one that's actually quite hard for us to unpack. How can God take a whole bunch of ordinary people, people like me and people like you who, who, who make mistakes, who, who do the wrong thing, who say the wrong thing, and, and, and yet use us to do such incredible things? How can God actually transform us into the sort of people who, who love God and, and love other people and, and do His will? So, so look, before we go anywhere at all tonight, can, can we just all agree we don't bring a lot to the table. Like, does anyone wanna put their hand up and say, nah, I've got it all worked out, I'm perfect, I know what I'm doing, God can use me because I'm amazing. No? No, no shows of hands there? Uh, and look, I, I know we live in a day and an age where we grow up, everyone grows up being told they're a rainbow and a skittle and a snowflake and uh, puppy's breath or whatever it is, but the truth of the matter is, is we can't even lick our own elbow, let alone make any real impact on the world around us. And I always check whenever I say it to see if anyone's actually trying to do it, but it doesn't look like it. Uh, the, the, the Bible says we're a flower quickly fading, we're here today and gone tomorrow, we're, we're a wave tossed in the ocean, we're a vapor in the wind that we don't bring a lot to the table. And yet you cannot help it but read through stories in the Bible and see time and time again that, that God takes these really ordinary people people who stuff up, who make mistakes, and, and somehow he just does this work in their lives. He transforms them from the inside out so that they, they turn not overnight, but over time into these, these godly people who, who, who can say the right thing and do the right thing, and, and God just works in amazing ways through them. I mean, to, to give you one example, we've, we've been tracking through the life of the Apostle Peter, right? And when Jesus met the Apostle Peter, he was a loud mouth fisherman. A man who, who often spoke before he thought and, and he found himself in trouble again and again. And yet, yet God takes Peter, a, a nobody from a backwater fishing town. And, and by the end of Peter's life, he's, he's trusting in God. He, he's preaching to crowds of thousands that, that God is just using him in an incredible way. And somehow he's actually leading the early church. And, and so we're left with this question then is like, is that supposed to be my story? Can, can God actually take me of all people and somehow turn me into the sort of person who, who, who does what he says I need to do, who, who loves God properly, who loves people properly and actually walks out his requirements? And, and so that is actually what I wanna try to unpack tonight. That is the question I wanna dig into. So does that sound good, Kemal? Awesome. So if you've got your Bible with you, Acts chapter 11, uh, we'll be picking off at verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. All right, so, so where we're picking things up, um, the, we're actually coming at the end of this, 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 uh, this really pivotal moment where, where the gospel gets preached to the Gentiles for the very first time. 
That through the leading of God, through angelic messengers and divine visions, Peter, he goes up to this, this Roman Gentile, the centurion called Cornelius, and he preaches him the good news. And then what we saw last week is Peter gets pulled back into the, the early church headquarters and they sort of, they scold him for, for doing that and they do what good church people do. They, they sit down, they have a conference, they have a committee to work out if um, God's actually allowed to do that. Uh, and lo and behold, at the end, they decide, yeah, God can actually do what he's already been doing and the gospel is now for everyone. It's open. Anyone who will, accept, who will hear it and accept it, they can uh, get salvation. And yet, at first glance at this verse here, it actually looks like we're back where we started, right? That the message is going out, it's going along all these uh, Mediterranean cities, Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, but it's only going to the Jews. But see, what, what Luke's actually doing here is he's putting us back into the, the broad storyline of the book of Acts. He's saying, look, do you guys remember when Stephen was martyred? Which for us was like seven or eight weeks ago. Uh, he's saying, well, when that happened... Everyone got scattered, and as the Christians were scattered, the gospel went with them. And at first, the gospel was only shared with the Jews. But verse 20, but there were some of them, some Christians, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists. So that's the, the non-Jewish Greeks in Antioch. So they spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus that either word had gotten out about what had happened with Peter and Cornelius and everyone was picking up that same line of thought or otherwise the Holy Spirit was leading people to, to share the gospel with the Gentiles. But either way, the good news, it's now open for anyone. Anyone who would, who would accept that Jesus died for their sins can be saved. And verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. All right, so, so, so what's happening is, is the news is spreading up the Mediterranean coastline. It's going from city to city to city until it hits the city called Antioch. And within the, the walls of Antioch, the church just explodes. It, it goes rampant. There's revival happening in the streets that we've gone from a single Gentile Roman centurion hearing the good news to the entire city of Antioch just going on fire for Jesus. And look, what we need to know is, is Antioch is not a backwater town. It's not a small little village. It is uh, the, the capital city of the province of Syria. In fact, we know it was the, the third largest city in the entire Roman Empire at the time. Uh, it was second only to Rome itself and Alexandria in Egypt. And around half a million people called Antioch home. And look, we do actually know a lot about what the city looked like, about the sort of people that were living there and what the culture looked like. And if I'm honest, it looks a lot like our modern cities today. Uh, they were told it was a place of learned men and liberal studies, that it was an educated populace who knew how to think for themselves, uh, that because of where it was placed on the Orentis River and uh, its location on the Mediterranean Sea, it was this, this hub of trade and commerce and business and... It was also just an absolute mixing pot of ethnicities. You've got Greeks, you've got Romans, you've got Jews, you've got Syrians, all rubbing shoulders and doing life together. But above and beyond that, what we know about Antioch is it had this reputation as a city that was known for sexual immorality that it was famous for its temple prostitution, that just outside the walls of Antioch there was this massive temple of Daphne 
where, where the sexual and, and everything around that was enthroned and worshipped and glorified. And yet it's in that city, of all the cities that God could choose, that the church explodes like it has never done before. And so verse 22, report of this, report of the church exploding in Antioch came back to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And so they sent Barnabas to Antioch. All right, so, so this is actually a, a pattern we've seen play out a couple times now in the book of Acts. That God does this amazing thing, he moves in a new way and inevitably it's happening outside the, the boundaries of the church. And so news trickles back to the headquarters and they go, no, we need to send someone, else, someone out to go and investigate what's going on. But, but every time this has happened so far, they've actually sent out one of their big guns. They sent out the disciples, they sent out an apostle, someone like Peter or James or John, and that's who goes and investigates. Uh, but, but what we're told here is that they don't send one of those disciples, they don't send anyone of any great renown, they send out Barnabas. And look, we've met Barnabas twice before in the book of Acts. Uh, we're told he was the son of encouragement in Acts 4, uh, that he generously sold off a plot of land and, and he gave that money to the church. And then in Acts 9, it's Barnabas who defends Saul when he tries to join the church. But basically at this point, Barnabas, he, he's, not, he's not a preacher. He's not a pastor. He's not a, he's not a missionary. He's sort of an ordinary man like me and you, whose only qualification in being sent is that he has been faithful in service to the body of Christ. And that's the man they choose to send to Antioch. And what we're actually gonna see happen is he's gonna get there and somehow he's gonna find himself in a position where he's actually leading the church in Antioch. That he's gonna become the, the, senior, the first senior pastor in what will soon be the largest church in the first century. And verse 23, when he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them. He encouraged them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. That Barnabas gets there and he just does what he's done every other time. He encourages. He, he doesn't teach, he doesn't instruct people on how they should be running the church. He simply says, keep on doing what you're doing. And verse 24, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Church, how is that for a way to describe someone? Like, like can we just agree, that's the sort of verse you, you want people to, to bring up at your funeral, it's the sort of verse you, you want on your tombstone and you want to describe your life, that, that you would, would have been a good person, a good man or a good woman who was full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith and a great many people were added to the Lord. In fact, I would actually go as far as saying this is the single most glowing description anyone in the New Testament gets apart from Jesus. Uh, that, that Luke, the, the author of the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke, uh, he only describes two other people in anywhere near as good terms as Barnabas is getting here. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, the guy who gave up his tomb for Jesus' body. Uh, Luke says he was a good and righteous man. And then uh, Stephen, the first martyr, Luke describes him as a man who was full of faith in the Holy Spirit. But Barnabas gets both of those descriptions thrown into one. And look, if you were here a couple of weeks ago when, when I preached through uh, Peter's 
presentation of the, gospels to the, the gospel to the Gentiles, you may be asking yourself a very reasonable question at this point. Liam, I thought you said no one could be good. In fact, just to double down on that, I actually said that the whole point of the gospel is, is we can't be good in and of ourselves. That we, we always do the wrong thing, we, we can never choose to do the right thing, that the whole reason Jesus had to come and, and, and die for us is because he had to live the life we couldn't live. And he had to die the death we deserve because we didn't have what it took. So what we're not saying here is that Barnabas was perfect. In fact, the word in Greek is agathos, which means good, kind, generous, upright, honorable, or good-natured. It's, it, it's sort of just this catch-all phrase that means he has a good character. But look, the, the reason I, I actually think that, that Luke is putting so much praise on Barnabas it's not because he, he just wants to show us how good a man he was. I don't think he's trying to set up Barnabas as this man who he wants everyone to emulate or, or look up to. I actually think that the reason such a glowing review was given of Barnabas is because God wants to turn us into that sort of person. That God wants to transform us from the inside out so that we could be a person who's described as a good man or a good woman who is full of the Holy Spirit and full of faith. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to park ourselves here on this verse for just a little bit, and I'm going to walk through how God can actually do that in us, how God can turn us into the person who, who could be described in that way. And in order for us to do that, we're going to have to talk about something called progressive sanctification. And I know it's a big word, it's a theological word, and if you ever read pod, I listen to podcasts or read books about the art of preaching, they'll say, don't use these sort of words because it, it's, it's too complicated, it distracts the, the audience, and it's not good for your congregation, but I think you guys are pretty switched on. I think you're pretty smart. I think you can handle these big theological words, and they're actually the right sort of words to use. So let's break it down. So progressive just means it takes time, right? That it's a process. It works itself over a long period. It, it's something that happens not overnight, but over time. And then sanctification literally just means to be set apart. It means to be put aside for the proper purpose that something is created for. So um, this podium is sanctified for the purpose of holding my notes up. Uh, you could say a pencil is sanctified for the purpose of writing uh, on a piece of paper. The clock at the back of the room is sanctified for stressing me out about finishing my message on time, that it's set apart for its proper use. Uh, so when it, when it comes to humanity, well, what it means for us to be sanctified is that we're set apart for the purpose or use that God intended when he created us. Or more specifically, when we are the sort of people that God intended for us to be. So progressive sanctification, therefore, is the process by which God takes us from these, these broken, black-hearted sinners and he turns us into that sort of person. And see... I actually think a lot of the time we get a little bit confused as to, to what salvation means. But because most of the time we think salvation starts and ends with the moment we give our lives to Jesus. But you know, we, we make the decision, we surrender to the Lordship of Christ, and then we, we've ticked the box, right? We, we've bought the fire insurance, we've got the get out, of hell, uh, get out of hell free card, and we get on with our lives. But the way the Bible talks about salvation is it, it actually... That's only part of the story. Don't get me wrong, so that, that moment of decision, it's an important moment, and if you haven't made the decision, I would encourage you to make it, but salvation is actually a longer story. 
to use more theological words that apparently you shouldn't use in sermons, uh, salvation can be broken into three parts. There's justification, sanctification, and glorification. So justification is that moment where you surrender to Jesus. That, that, at that, that point where you put your hand up or you say the prayer or you, you accept Jesus in your heart, you are justified. And, and all that really means is you have been saved from the penalty of your sin. It's actually a legal term that means cleared of all charges. Uh, if you want a good way to remember it, justification makes it just as if I've never sinned, okay? And from there, we enter into this lifelong process of sanctification, this process by which we are conformed into the image of Christ. And what that means is not overnight, but over time we are being saved from the power of sin in our lives that God is making us look more and more and more like Jesus. And then finally, when we breathe our last in this life and our first in eternity, we will be glorified. We will be saved from the, the presence of sin forever. That there'll be no more heartache, no more pain, no more tears, that every evil thing will be undone and sin will be removed forever. And so salvation, it means all of those things. It means we have been saved from the penalty of our sin, we are being saved from the power of our sin, and one day we will be saved from the very presence of sin forever. But with all of that to say, God did not just save you so that you could come to church on a Sunday. He didn't just save you so that you could be a slightly better version of yourself or so that you could say your prayers and read your Bible or go to a small group. God saved you so that he could make you look more and more like Jesus. That Romans 8.28 says, and we, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who have been called according to his purpose. So that, that's a verse we, we love to read, but verse 29 actually goes on, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And don't get scared about the word predestined, it just means to predestine. Uh, those he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among, among many brothers. That the gospel doesn't end when we make a decision. It doesn't end when our sin is no longer counted against us. The gospel story is, is continually working out in our lives so that not overnight, but over time, we are conformed into the image of Christ. That we might look more and more and more like Jesus. And, and that's what's happening here. That, that's the reason Barnabas can be described as a good man, that God has given him a new heart. He, he's helping him not to be conformed to the patterns of this world, but to be renewed by the transforming of his mind. Uh, God is changing his desires and his appetites, his likes and his dislikes. He, he is sanctifying him into the person that God always intended him to be. And, and that's what he's doing in our lives as well. He, he's turning us into those sort of people. And the reason that's actually possible at all is due to the second description that Luke gives Barnabas, that he was full of the Spirit. That the way God actually does his sanctifying work in our lives is through the work of the Spirit. Uh, that 2 Peter 1 verses 3 to 4 says, his divine power, in other words, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through him, through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sin. 
Look, I, I don't know how many times you've read through a verse like that, but that verse should blow your socks off. I mean, just stop and process that for a second. God takes a wretched, black-hearted sinner like me and like you, and somehow he, he sends Jesus to die for us, and then he sends the Holy Spirit to come and live in us, and through the work of the Spirit in our lives, he, he takes that sort of person, and he makes us look more and more and more like Jesus. He makes us partakers, sharers, participators in the nature of God. Church, that should absolutely blow your mind that the Son of God became a man so that men and women could become sons and daughters of God. And so what that means practically is because of the work of the Spirit in our lives, we, we start to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, which is that word agathos, uh, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That God begins to change us from the inside out, so we, we just begin exhibiting those fruit in our life. They're not something we have to fabricate or, or make happen on our own strength. They, they just get produced naturally over time. And it's not just that. It's not, that, it's not just the, the fruit of the Spirit. We actually get this enabling uh, skill set, the, the, the gifts of the Spirit as well. The gifts of the apostle, the prophet, the teacher, miracles, healing, helps, administration, tongues, interpretation of tongues, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, faith, distinguishing between spirits, our gifts of the evangelist, teacher, serving, encouraging, contributing, leadership, mercy, marriage, and celibacy, that because of the work of the Spirit in our lives, all of those things begin to just happen in us. That the Holy Spirit comes along and he makes us look more and more like Jesus. He conforms us into the image of Christ. And church, that should amaze you. That that should be something that gets you excited in the morning. And so look, Luke goes on and he's like, look, Barnabas was this good man. He was being conformed to the image of Christ. He, he was full of the Spirit. The Spirit was working in him. And above and beyond that, Barnabas was full of faith. And the word there for faith is pistis, which means to believe or to trust or to have faith. And Barnabas was full of trust. He was full of faith in God, that he trusted that God is who he says he is and he always keeps his promise. And you know what's crazy? Even that is a fruit of the Spirit. Even our ability to trust in God is something God actually grows in us. Again, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, agathos, faithfulness, which is pistis, as well as gentleness and self-control. And see, I think, again, as Christians, we often get this back to front, right? Because we think faith and trust in God is like the one thing we bring to the table. Like, even if God does all the other heavy lifting, it's like we have to, to muster up enough trust in God to, to, to have faith in Him, and then, and then He brings us to salvation, but Ephesians 2 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That even our faith, even our ability to actually trust God is something that God has to give us. And so can I just say, if you're here tonight and you don't feel like you have a lot of faith in God, but like sometimes you have these moments in your life where, where you don't trust that, that God is gonna come through on everything he's promised you. Can I actually just say that's okay? Because God is growing that ability in you. 
And it takes time. It's progressive sanctification. He has to grow that fruit in you, that you don't just plant a seed in the ground and, and see fruit immediately. It takes time. Uh, but, but even if all God has given you at this moment is just the tiniest amount of faith, the tiniest amount of trust in him, that, that, that's all you, you really need. Because at the end of the day, it's, it's not the amount of faith you have that matters. It's what you're putting your faith in that actually counts. Uh, that a mustard-sized faith in an infinite God will always do more than a mountain of faith in anything else. Uh, in fact, there's actually this story in one of the Gospels where there's this man who's, whose son is demon-possessed. And it's like every day that the son is throwing himself in the fire and he's throwing himself in the water and, and there's nothing the dad can do at all. And, and he goes to the disciples and they can't help and eventually he goes to Jesus, Right? And he falls to the feet of Jesus and he says, Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus turns to this father and he says, if I can, all things are possible for the one who believes, for the one who trusts. The, the word there is pistis again. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. And again, same way, it's pisses. Jesus, I have faith, but help my lack of faith. Jesus, I trust you, but help my lack of trust. And, and God answers that man's prayer. And see, at the end of the day, that's what sanctification is. It's God taking us and taking the little we bring to the table and, and overnight, not over, uh, sorry, not overnight, but over time, conforming us into the image of Jesus. That God loves us so much that he sent Jesus to die for us and then he sent the spirit into our lives to transform us into the person he always made us to be. That each and every one of us, if we call Jesus our Lord, we are being sanctified. He, he is changing us from the inside out. All right, so, so moving on with our story then. Verse 25. So Barnabas, he went to Tarsus to look for Saul. All right, so that just... That seems a bit weird, just pulling on the end of the story. So, so, what, so what's happening here is, is, is Barnabas is in Antioch. He, he's helping establish this church. He's training up leaders and he's creating community and fellowship. But, but evidently, it becomes too much for him to handle. And so what he does is he goes out and looks for this man called Saul of Tarsus. And the way the Greek verbs play out here are Barnabas had to go at great lengths, go to great lengths to try and find Saul. So he's like out there, he's searching for Saul. And look, I, I know we, we last saw Saul in, in the book of Acts just a couple of chapters ago, but from Saul's perspective, a whole lot of time ha has actually passed. And, and this is something if you're not careful when you're reading through the book of Acts, you can miss quite easily because the book of Acts actually takes place over like 30 years of church history. It, it's not just a couple of months or years or anything like that. So when we first met Saul, he was a Jewish uh, Pharisee persecuting the Christians. So he, he's there for the stoning of Stephen. He's uh, going around from town to town, pulling people out of their houses, having them killed because of their faith. And then, you know, one day, as Sandy preached a couple of weeks ago, he's, he's on, his, on the road to Damascus, on the way to go persecute some more Christians when, when Jesus appears in his life in, in the full glory and majesty of, of the risen king and, and he knocks Saul off his high horse and he sort of forcibly brings him into the faith. And then what happens is Saul tries to join in with the church. 
But because they don't really trust this man who yesterday was killing Christians, they sort of turn him away. And uh, what, what we actually find out is Saul steps out of the picture for a bit. Uh, that in some of his letters, he tells us that he goes and spends the next three years in Arabia wrestling through his faith. And then after that, he goes back to his hometown of Tarsus. And at this point, he's probably spent at least the next five to eight years in Tarsus away from the church. And see, the reason I think there's such a long period between Saul's conversion and his first opportunity at ministry is because there's a lot of work God actually had to do inside of Saul before he was ready to put him to work. Because if I'm honest with you, I think a whole lot of us, if we met Saul at this point in his life, we would not like him. And I know he wrote a lot of the Bible and a lot of the New Testament, but he's not really that nice of a character. I mean, from what we can tell in some of his letters and from the book of Acts itself, we know Paul was really hard-headed. He was really stubborn. He was really arrogant. And importantly, he was really, really proud. There are times where he gets into fights with the other apostles, where he gets into fights with Barnabas himself. Uh, once on the mission field, he has a disagreement with this other guy, and so he just leaves the guy on the mission field, just by himself. Um, not, not just that, he, he's really academic, he, he's hard to communicate with, and I just love this. In, in one of Peter's letters, Peter is talking about Paul, or Saul, whichever way it is at the time, and, and he's like, look, a lot of what Paul teaches is correct, but I find it really hard to understand. So even the apostle Peter found it hard to, to communicate with Saul slash Paul. That, that God had a lot of sanctification he had to do in Saul's life. And that's not to say he had to make him perfect before he could use him, uh, because God works through broken instruments all the time because that's all he has to deal with. In fact, towards the end of Paul's life, uh, in the book of Philippians, he writes, not that I have already obtained this or I've already become perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have been made perfect, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I strain towards what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize that is in Christ Jesus. See, church, what we actually need to understand about sanctification is that it is progressive. And I feel it's really important that I bring that to the surface tonight because what we can tend to think should happen is we should give our lives to Jesus and then the next day, all those bad habits, all those bad desires, all the wrong decisions we make should just fall away. That every struggle we should have should just go away because we've given our life to Jesus. That that porn addiction should just stop overnight. That we should stop getting angry at our spouses just overnight that we should stop having these desires and hopes and things that are not of Jesus because we have given our life to him. But more often than not, what we find in the Christian walk is, is those things take time to change. That God doesn't do those things overnight. And so if you go into this walk with Christ expecting to be turned into this Christ-like image overnight, then what will happen is you will be greatly disappointed and you'll become angry at God. And so, so look, should you change? Yes, absolutely. You should not be staying the same as you were. But, but God does not have to do it overnight. In fact, coming back to, to Saul, if you go through the, his letters in the New Testament and you put them all in chronological order, right? So uh, book of Galatians is first, first and second Timothy is toward the end of his life and you, you sort out all of his letters. 
and then you pull out the bits where he's talking about himself, you can actually see how long it took for God to deal with Saul's pride and his arrogance. So in the book of Galatians, uh, he's, he's comparing himself to the apostles, right? And he's saying, look, I'm just as good as the other apostles. I'm, I'm a super apostle just like they are. I'm exactly the same. And then in Galatians 2.6, he says, and all those who seem to be influential, so he's talking about the apostles, that they are, what they are called makes no difference to me because God shows no partiality. So he's like, nah, the apostles, they're nothing. God, God doesn't really care about their titles. And then you fast forward like five to 10 years and he starts writing the book of Corinthians, the letters to the Corinthians. And he says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to even be called an apostle. And that, that's just in the space of five to 10 years. And then you fast forward again to the book of Ephesians where he says, I am the very least of all the saints. So now he's saying compared to every other Christian in the church, I'm like at the bottom until you get to the very end of his life where he's writing to Timothy, his, his protege and his apprentice. And in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So how's that for transformation? Start of his life, I'm a super apostle. I'm as good as all the other apostles. I'm just as good as Peter. And then at the end of his life, he's like, nah, I was the worst of all the sinners in the whole world. See, again, sanctification, it is progressive. It doesn't happen overnight. If God wanted to, he could do that. He could flick the switch and he could change you into a brand new person, but more often than not, he uses the things of this world. He uses our experiences and our heartache and our pain and the things we'd rather not go to to, so that slowly, bit by bit, we turn into the person God wants us to be. It's like the Holy Spirit has got this big block of marble and he's just slowly chipping away all the bits that don't belong until what's left underneath is this, this image, this statue of Jesus. And what's more, God doesn't do the sanctifying process in the same order for everyone. That's why some of you become a Christian and within a matter of months, you stop swearing, right? Like, like you'll be walking along one day and you'll kick your toe and instead of like these foul words coming out of your mouth, you'll say something like, gosh darn it, or flip, or whatever the, the current Christian swear word is that we use. Uh, but but other of us, others of us, we, we, we do this Christian walk for like years and years and years and our dictionary, our language, it, it doesn't change at all. That we still sound like we, we did when we were in high school. And, and I should know, I, I run youth, I deal with high school kids all the time and I, I kid you not, Last year, I preached at a youth camp, and I came down, and this high school kid walked up to me and said, that was the best effing speech I've ever heard. <laughs> but look, all, all that to say, if you feel like you've still got a long way to go in your faith, if you feel like you, you're, you're failing to the same sins over and over and over again, like you're doing the same mistakes and making the same wrong choices again and again and again, it's It's okay. Your heart should be that you don't stay there, that you want to change and move away from that, and you should, you should work towards that. You should, you should put yourself in the environment that you bring the things of God to life, and you should put to death the things that are not of God. But at the end of the day, God knows what he's doing. He knows the timing. He knows the process that he's got you on, and, and he's doing a work in your heart. And if it took Saul, it took God 30 years to kick the pride out of Saul, then I think God's got you sorted as well. All right, verse 26. Uh, and when Barnabas had found Saul, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and they taught a great many people. 
See, church, God has taken these two people, these two ordinary people like, like me and you, Barnabas, a layman who had no ministry experience, no teaching experience, whose only qualification was his encouraging nature, and Saul, a man who had persecuted the church, who had been sidelined for the last 11 years. And, and God takes these two men, he brings them together, and he, he's, he's sanctifying them, he's transforming them, and he uses them in a way that is utterly disproportionate to anything that could come from them. And, and look, if you actually stop and think about the, the skills and, and um, the character that God has grown in both of these men, they are perfectly suited to the task that God has put them to. Uh, I mean, who better to teach the, the unchurched and irre, irreligious Gentiles of Antioch than Saul, who had spent his entire life memorizing Scripture and teaching Scripture? Who better to meet the multicultural nature of Antioch than Saul? So, so Saul was a Roman citizen by birth, so he could relate to the Romans. He, he had a classical Greek education, so he could relate to the Greeks. And by his own words, he was a Jew of Jews, so he could relate to the Jews in the city. He, he met all of their needs. And who better to, to encourage this, this flourishing church and to, to lift up those that were, that were in sin than Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Again, God has taken these two people and he's used them in a way that is bigger than anything that could come from them. And, and can I just say that you have no idea what a life fully surrendered to God can actually do. And it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter how long you've been doing it or how much you failed or what your background was. It doesn't matter if you, you were like Saul and you were anti-church and anti-Christian or if you were like Barnabas and you were encouraging and giving money to the church. God can take whatever you bring to the table and he can mold you into the image of Christ. Not that you become less of yourself, but you come more into the person God intended you to be. And then he can take that person and do more with it than you ever thought was possible. And you know what's beautiful about the story? Their sanctification, it doesn't just end with, with Paul and Barnabas. It spreads out to everyone in Antioch. And that verse 26, and the band can come up as we land this off tonight. Verse 26, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Church, do you know what Christian means? It means little Christ. And the reason this verse is so important is because the early church, they didn't give themselves this title. That the city in Antioch, the, the, the people that, that weren't part of the church, they actually used this line, Christian, as a way of mocking the church. That Jesus preferred to call his disciples, uh, disciples, disciples or followers. The early church used phrases like followers of the way or saints, but the, the, the world around the early church in Antioch, they looked at them. And because they were being sanctified into the image of Christ, because they were being molded into the people God had intended them to be, they mocked them by saying, oh, you look, look just like Jesus. Oh, you're so willing to sacrifice for others. Oh, you're so generous with your time and money. Oh, you, you care more about other people than you do yourself. And as a way of, of making fun of them, said, ha ha, you look just like Jesus. And the early church, they took a hold of that. They were like, wait, really? You think I look like Jesus? See, what, what happens is, is when God does the sanctifying work among his people, the world looks at us. And instead of seeing a whole bunch of, of 
ordinary, black-hearted sinners. It sees a whole bunch of people who look just like Jesus. And this plays out in how they respond to the things in the world around them. Verse 27, in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Hey, church, do you know what early historians say set the Christians apart from the rest of the world? Something like this would happen. There'd be a plague hitting a town. And where every other sane person would run in the opposite direction, those who looked like Jesus would come running into that city and they'd look after the sick and the poor and the dying. Or, and this is another thing ancient historians say, there'd be this practice of uh, sort of like a, an ancient form of abortion. They would, they would take unborn, uh, unwanted newborn babies and they would leave them on the side of the streets to die. And where everyone else would just walk past those children lying on the streets ready to die, those who looked like Jesus would come running in and pick up those children and raise them as their own. That what set the early church apart, it wasn't because it was full of great men doing amazing things. It wasn't because the church preached amazing sermons or they they held really good worship or, or, or they could run really good programs. What set the early church apart from the world around us is, is that it was full of ordinary people who looked like Jesus doing God's work. And that, that is how God breaks new ground. That that is how, how God moves in this world. He takes broken, stuffed up people like me and like you and He sends us the Spirit And that Spirit does this work in our hearts and it changes our desires, it changes our appetites and our hopes and the things we want to be doing and the things we don't want to be doing. It it makes us look like Jesus. And then God puts us to to work, doing the thing that Jesus would do if Jesus were in our shoes. The whole point of this series has been that God breaks new ground that God wants to bring light into the darkness, hope to the hopeless. He wants to bring salvation to a dead and dying world. That his goal was always to expand the borders of Eden and to bring the kingdom of heaven near. And for whatever reason, for whatever reason, he chooses to do that through us. He chooses to work through our hands and our feet, that we might be the ones that proclaim good news to the poor that we might be the ones who proclaim proclaim freedom for the prisoners, that that we might be the ones who proclaim recovery for the sight of the blind and that the oppressed might be set free. And and right now, all across the world, there are billions of people who have been conformed to the image of Christ and they are running around a whole bunch of little Jesuses doing what he would be doing if he were in those spaces. So I, I, I wanna finish off this whole series by asking you, Where is God breaking new ground that you can join in with Him? Where does God want to take new ground through you? Where has He placed you? 
Who are the people he has, he has surrounded you with? Who, who has he put in your life that they, he could take a hold of you and use you to expand the kingdom of heaven? And, and look, I, I had a list of things I could go through and things like run, running alpha groups or leading small groups or, or serving in church. And those are all good and proper, but I actually think this has to be a work of the Holy Spirit in your life. That it has to right now be the Holy Spirit convicting you as to where He wants to be using you. And, and right now, I'm, I'm fully um, confident of the fact that He's, he's stirring something up inside of you and He's, he's bringing to your, your, your mind's eye people or places or communities or, 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 or things in your life that He wants to break new ground. And so will you partner with Him in that? And you don't have to worry that you don't bring enough to the table. He can do all the hard work and, and he's making you into the sort of person that can do what he wants you to do. But will you join in with him? And the church, God did not save you just so you can do church. He saved you so that he can make you look like Jesus and then use you to break new ground. So Lord, I, I just thank you that Lord, you, you love us so much that, that you sent your only son to die for us. And, and when, we, when we trust in, in what you did on the cross, that that counts for us and we are justified, Lord, but above and beyond that, we are being sanctified. That the reason you ascended is because you said someone was gonna come and he was gonna be, we were gonna do greater things because the spirit is in us than we would do if you were next to us. And so, Lord, I, I just pray that, that you would make us a people who, who, who are being transformed more and more into your image. That, that we, would, we would trust in the work you're doing in our hearts. We, we would lean into that, promise, that, that process. We would join in with that work of sanctification. But, Lord, that we would also know you don't just change us so we can stay where we are. You change us so that we can get to work. That the church might be full of ordinary people doing the work that God had set before them. So Lord, I just pray right now that you would just do a convicting work in our hearts. That, that you would bring to, our, to our, our, our thoughts the ways you have changed us and the work you have set before us because of those changes. We praise you, Lord, and we glorify you in your name. Amen. Well, just we're gonna we're gonna respond with one last song of praise. And yeah, I, I would just encourage you to get to your feet and just praise God for what He's done in your life and what He wants to do in your life. So won't you respond? To